Father, we pray as we open your book now that you would bring this psalm alive in our hearts, that you would show us your ways, that you would dazzle us with your character and your works and your nature, and you would help us to see uh, that in our day of trouble, there's hope. Lord, open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Would your spirit have its way in our hearts as you help us to see, help us to embrace the message of this psalm, that it would change us and it would help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I think that the last six weeks of our life here as a church have been some of the most difficult weeks in our church's history. Uh, Certainly in my time here, we've seen in our church family two tragic deaths. We have seen multiple people come close to death with heart issues, cardiac issues, and and praise the Lord that uh, those people were helped through surgeries. We've seen cancer return in a dear sister. We've seen chronic issues that haven't gone away. We've seen family members that continue to reject Christ. Uh, This hit home personally uh, for me as um, my dad almost died a few weeks ago with his own heart issue that nobody knew about. And as I was racing to the airport to try to get back home for his surgery, uh, tried calling my mom and happened to catch my dad right as he was going into the operating room, right there on Highway 121, prayed for him and wondered if I would ever talk to him again. Jesus said in John 16, In this world, you will have trouble. That's guaranteed. And my guess is that we could go around the room and we could all put our hand up and talk about trouble in our life. It's not unique to these situations. So I think we need a text that will minister to us in our day of trouble. We need a text to process what's happened. And, 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 and knowing that this isn't the last time it's going to be hard in life, we need something to prepare us for when trouble comes again or to minister to us in the current trouble that we're experiencing. And I can't think of a better place in the Bible to go than Psalm 16. Uh, this was written by King David, and he was no stranger to trouble. Um, you, know, you know his background, right? He, he spent years running for his life from enemies abroad, even enemies in his own family. He had uh, one of his sons in particular that turned against him and tried to kill him on a number of occasions. Um, Personal trials, the tragic murder of some of his own unbelieving children, the grief of his own adultery and the murder that he committed, the ongoing bitter conflict amongst members of his family, and the death of a newborn. That was his own fault. 
And you know, David was no spiritual superman. He was a real man, just like you, just like me, frail, weak, problem fraught, and in need of God's grace. And, and, and what's so amazing about this psalm is in his day of trouble, God meets him. God, God connects with him in a way that is, is truly an amazing display of his grace. God meets him in the day of trouble and he helps him. He counsels him. He, he moves David from a place of struggle to a place where he's resting in his God. And, and how, how do we need instruction like that in our day of trouble? So what we, we want to do is, is really just kind of eavesdrop in a spiritual way on this conversation. We want to look over the shoulder of David as he pens this song. Because remember, he's the author. So this is his experience. But he pens this song as a testimony for how God helped him. And so as we look into this psalm ourselves, I think we will see the aid, the help that God has for us in our own day of trouble. We can learn from David. Do you guys remember when we were kids and we learned the whole stop, drop, and roll routine? You know, if you're on fire, right, you stop, drop, and roll. So I think what we have in this psalm is sort of a, a spiritual emergency step plan. This, this, this is a psalm that you break the glass and pull the handle in your day of trouble. So I'd, what I'd like you to see as we look at this psalm in detail together are seven emergency steps for your day of trouble. Seven emergency steps to help you, to help us in our day of trouble, and we can even learn it in the sense of preparing for our day of trouble as well. Seven emergency steps we, we need our God to help us. So let's look together at the first emergency step. You'll see it there in verse 1. Uh, you're welcome to pull out that outline in your bulletin and follow along if you want to do that. First emergency step. We're going to break the glass. What do we see? Step 1, train yourself to turn to God. That's step 1. Train yourself to turn to God. We see that there in verse 1. Look at it with me, please. Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. Now, what's so shocking about this is right out of the gate, David's knee-jerk response. We could call it his, his spiritual reflex. His day of trouble comes, and what does he do? He turns to God. And, and, and we know, if, if, if you're a Christian, if you're a believer, you know the sort of Sunday school answer is, in our day of trouble, I'm supposed to turn to God. Okay, we all know that. But what's so amazing about this is, it's the first thing he does. And it's convicting, isn't it? When your day of trouble comes, what do you do? What do I do? You know what a lot of us do? We Google it. What's this medical condition, right? What's the treatments? We jump to social media. We call a friend. We, we go into this sort of manic mode where we're just active and, okay, I gotta do this, gotta do this, gotta make a plan. And what's convicting is he turns to God first in his day of trouble. And there may, a, there may be a place for doing some of those other things, but they're out of order. We turn to our Lord first. The, the spiritual reflex that God is helping us to see is to turn to him. And notice, he calls God, he says, preserve me, O God, and then he uses this language, for I take refuge in you. And that's one of those terms, you'll see it all over the Psalms, especially, we don't typically use it in our vernacular much, uh, do you guys know what a refuge refuge is? It's, it's a place you run to for safety or help when you're in trouble. And um, we all know what this is like. Um, do you have small children, grandchildren, 
great-grandchildren? Do you know any short people anywhere? <laughs> um, you, you, you've seen this before, okay? You totally get this. Uh, little Johnny falls and skins his knee. He starts crying. Where does he immediately run to? Mom. Because mom's a refuge, right? And that, that's the picture here. David is saying in the day that you fall, spiritually speaking, the day when you're in trouble, the, the, the intuitive response ought to be for a child of God to turn to your father, to, to, to turn for help there. He says, I take refuge in you. He says, God is the place that I flee. And the reality is what we often turn to we often do turn to God, but we do as a last resort, not a first. You know, really, there, there's only three places you can turn when you're in trouble. You know that? Three places. Let me, let me boil this down, make it real simple. You can turn inward to self-sufficiency, right? I'm going to get this, or depression. Oh, no, what am I going to do? You can turn outward, right? I'm going to Google this. I'm going to call this friend. I'm going to get this uh, this treatment. I'm going to... Go grab that resource. Inward, outward. David says, how about upward? That ought to be the first. And again, there's a place for some of those other roles. But first, we must turn to our Father. We must turn to God. And that's why this is so convicting. We need to train our hearts that God is the first place we turn to, not the last place. Think of, think of how much turmoil we go through because we turn to God last instead of first. So, so David says right out of the gate, we, we follow his example, right? The, this, this reflex action, this response. Trouble comes, I turn to God. He is my refuge. He is the place I run to automatically when there's some danger. That's the first one. Train yourself to turn to God in that way. Look at the second emergency step. And we got, we got to keep going. It's a long psalm. But we're, we're, we're building uh, an emergency plan for trouble, right? Look at the second step, the second emergency step. It's in verse 2. Make the Lord your highest good. Make the Lord your highest good. Look at verse 2 with me. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord, and I have no good beside you. Now, if you're reading that, you're thinking, that sounds redundant. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. What's the deal? Now, you notice, if you look closely in your Bible, you'll see that the first Lord is in all capital letters. Do you see that there? And the second one is not. And that's, that's helping us to see that there are actually two words being used here. They're not the same words. The first word that's in all capital letters is God's personal name. He's saying, my personal God, Yahweh, we might call it. This personal God, this self-existent God, this... His personal name, this God that I know personally, is my Lord. And that second word, Lord, means master or authority. So he says, this God that I know personally is my master, is my Lord, is my sovereign. And that's so helpful, isn't it? What's he, what is he saying? He, he's telling himself, he's reminding himself through conversation with the Lord... God is sovereign over my life, isn't he? God knows everything that's going on. He's got a plan. He, his plan runs every atom in the known universe. He does all things well. So he says, this Lord, this God that I know is my master. He's my authority. 
He's calling the shots in my life. I need to remember that in my day of trouble, David says. And then notice what else he says. He says, I have no good beside you. Now, remember, this book in our Bibles called the book of Psalms is actually a songbook. It's a hymnal. And so what we're reading here are the lyrics to songs that the nation of Israel would have sung on various occasions. Now, of course, we don't have the musical part, right? We don't know where the drum solo happens or the, you know, the killer bass riff or something like that. We don't know where any of those things are. But the language is written in poetry just like songs today are. And so David writes this in a very poetic way that really is beautiful. So let me, let me try to give it to you from the way David wrote it, okay? He says, my good is not above you. You see that? We normally don't talk like that, but poetry does that. Songs do that. That's what makes them memorable. He says, my good is not above you. He, he looks and he says, look at all the good things I have in my life, my family, my blessings, my health, my this, my that. And he says, there is no good I have that is higher than you, Lord. There's no greater hope, he says, no, nothing more I trust in, nothing good that I live for more than you. See, God is his joy. God is his treasure. God is the focus of his life. And he says, in my day of trouble, in my moment of danger, when other good things I possess have been taken away, I still have you. And you're my best good. You're my highest good. There's nothing above you that I'm wishing I had that I don't. It's it. God is his good. One of God's redemptive purposes in moments of danger and trouble and trial is he uses those things to expose our highest good. Doesn't he? He uses sickness to show me that health can't be my highest good. He uses problems in marriage to show me that a fulfilling marriage can't be my highest good. He uses the death of a loved one to show that as wonderful as a family member or friend can be and a blessing from God in our life, that family member, that friend can't be our highest good. Maybe it's having a perfect family. Maybe it's having a certain financial portfolio. Whatever it is, God God brings these troubles into our life to expose what what we're really saying is our highest good so that we'll go, oh, why am I trusting in that? And we'll make him our highest good. Now, if you, if you buy into that, if you see that, you recognize that that actually is a very good thing. It's a rescue operation of sorts, isn't it? Because God wants us to make him the highest good. And if you're a believer, no one would argue with that. That's good theology. But how hard is that to do? Because we just love those other things. And sometimes we love them too much. So he says, the Lord is my good. He says, I have no good. My good is not above you, Lord. How do you know if God is your ultimate good? Well, he tells us. Do you freely submit to God as your Lord? Do you do that? So, What's this rescue plan in our day of trouble? We want to train ourselves to turn to God as our refuge. 
We want to make the Lord our highest good. We want to look how, how trouble exposes maybe places that we're trusting in too much as our highest good so that we can turn back to the Lord. Notice the third emergency step we see here in verses 3 and 4 as we build a rescue plan for our day of trouble. It is this, avoid the sorrows of spiritual syncretism. Avoid the sorrows of spiritual syncretism. We see this in verses 3 and 4. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. And it's actually kind of funny. You ever listen to a song and you hear a line and you go, what does that mean? It can mean this, it can mean this, and then you get online and there's all these different opinions about what the song means. That's actually what happens right here. There's some ambiguity in David's song, and there's some gr- grammatical issues too, where it's, it's really hard to pin David down on his meaning in verses 3 and 4. But, but let me tell you what we know for sure. Okay, Let's just major on the majors here. What we can say for sure is that David is describing here a phenomenon amongst his people as he's writing in the 10th century B.C. In David's day, there were Israelites that would claim Yahweh, the the Hebrew God, the true God. They would claim him as their God. They would be involved in religious service. They would participate in the festivals. They they would do all of that. they, They lived otherwise upright lights as Israelites, except for one thing. They were also worshiping some of the pagan gods around them. And you'll remember, for a lot of Israel's history, Israel is there and they're surrounded by polytheists, right? Their, their religion is this unique thing that says there is one God, only one true God, worship him alone. And all the other, imagine if all your neighbors thought there were like 50,000 deities and you're the one guy that believes in one. Well, that, that's what's going on here. And so a lot of the Israelites caved to that influence and they became what we might call syncretists. That's a word that means people that were, were worshiping Yahweh and other deities at the same time. If you want it more simple, think of it like this. They had a divided devotion. They had a divided devotion. And that's probably what these verses are referring to. They were worshiping the true God and other deities. They said their hope was in Yahweh, but it was really also in the other gods. The the, the logic went like this. The more gods I have, the better things are going to be. Right? Just just some insurance there, right? Just, Just a few extra deities, just in case. What does he say will happen to these folks? Look back at the text. The sorrows of those who have bartered for another god will what? Be multiplied. Mark it. A divided devotion leads to a certain sorrow. That's what he's saying. The sorrow sorrow always awaits the one who puts their ultimate hope and trust in the wrong place. And we, and we see that. Have you seen this before, haven't you? Have you, have you met that, that professing believer that would say they're a Christian and you don't see Jesus or any evidence, any fruit in their life? I'm not trying to make a final judgment, but just that type of person. And they have some medical diagnosis. And maybe like, like I have been, maybe you've been at their bedside when the doctor comes in and says, I'm sorry, there's nothing more we can do. And their hope dissolves in that hospital room because functionally, practically, their hope is not really in the Lord Jesus. Their hope is really in a cure. And the doctor says there is none. 
That's what David is describing. Their sorrows will be multiplied when you put your hope in the wrong place. That's what happens to your hope. That's what happens to your well-being. The, and, and this is interesting. Look back at the text. The one with divided devotion is not only full of sorrow, David says, but David's actually offended by this. He says, I'm not going to participate with them in their sacrifices. In fact, I'm not even going to speak their names. It is no small offense to divide your devotion between the God who made the heavens and earth, the God who runs everything, the God who lives and dies in your place through the person of Jesus Christ. It is no small thing to divide your devotion between that God and something else. And Davis, David demonstrates that in his, his speech here. Now, I'm pretty sure that if we were to go around the room, we would not find people here that are worshiping Jesus and Buddha or some of the Hindu gods or some of the Papua New Guinean generational people, you know, relatives that have died, deity things. But it's so easy to have a divided heart, isn't it? Think of, think of that, that Christian that's single, that's trying to trust Jesus, but they fight all the time the hope of finding a mate. Think of that parent who's trying to trust Jesus, whose adult child is not walking with the Lord, and they fight all the time not putting their hope and trust in their children's conversion. Think of that person in a difficult family situation where people aren't getting along and they're trying to walk with God, but they're tempted. If my family was just like this, everything would be okay. That believer with a medical condition who's trying to walk with God, but is tempted to believe, if I could just find a cure. That's syncretism. That's having a divided devotion. The, you know, the danger for us as believers is not that we would abandon Jesus. I mean, that, that, I guess that's, that's a temptation sometimes. But I think most Christians, the danger is this. They're not trusting in God as their hope alone as their highest good. It's a singular devotion, right? It, it, it's a, it's a one-way street of trust and love to one person, the Lord. And the reality is sorrow and disappointment and anger and worry and fear and bitterness are the residual left by shattered hope put in the wrong place. Do you know what the things are in your life that tend to divide your devotion? Do you know those things? We need to pray the prayer of Psalm 86, verse 11. Give me an undivided heart, O Lord, that I would fear your name alone. That's how we pray. That's how we pursue, to turn away from a divided devotion. We need to be careful to avoid the dangers of spiritual syncretism, to to not have a divided devotion, to let our allegiance be in one alone. So what's going on in the psalm? David's in a day of trouble. He's in a a difficulty. And he's struggling. 
And he is cataloging for us in this song what God did in him and through him. And we're looking over his shoulder. We're trying to figure out what are, what are some steps we can take, an emergency plan when we're in trouble. We've seen we need to turn to God as our refuge, right? We need to make him our highest good. We see we need to avoid the dangers of spiritual syncretism, not have a divided devotion. I, I'm, I'm trusting God, but I really want this other thing too. Let's look at the fourth thing. The fourth emergency step, it's in verses 5 and 6. Embrace the giver as your hope, not his gifts. Embrace the giver as your hope, not, or excuse me, embrace the giver as your ultimate hope, not his gifts. I forgot the ultimate. Embrace the giver as your ultimate hope, not his gifts. Look at verses 5 and 6. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. Now, this is one of those verses that doesn't make sense because we're 21st century American Granbarians. And we're not 10th century B.C. Israelites. Okay, so let's put our sandals on, right? Our 10th century B.C. sandals, and let's, let's think like an Israelite, okay? What does he mean when he talks about the lines have fallen to me. Well, think back to your Old Testament as God gave the land, the promised land to Israel in the time of Joshua, and you can read about this in Joshua verse seven, chapter 17. You want to write that down. They would divide up the land with these lines, and they would use that to allot a portion of the land to different families. Okay, So that's what he's talking about, the lines, the dividing lines that divide up the promised land. And David says here, the lines have fallen to me, meaning my portion is pleasant. We're thinking, man, that's right, he's the king of Israel, right? So he got the biggest slice of the pizza. But that's not what he says. He's not talking about the lines falling to him in pleasant places in the sense of he's looking at land No, look back at the text. He's not talking about land or wealth or possessions because he's the king of Israel. No, he says, what is his portion? What is his inheritance? Talk, go ahead. It's God himself, right? He says, the Lord is the portion of my inheritance. It's, It's God himself that is his inheritance. He says, he is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. He says, you support my lot. Uh, my heritage here in the scripture is just another word for inheritance. He says the fact that God himself is my inheritance is a beautiful thing. Makes us think of Numbers chapter 18. Remember that where God's talking about the inheritance given to the priests? And in Numbers 18 verse 20, God tells the Levites, the priests, you're not getting any portion of the land. Well, why is that? These are the religious leaders. Why not? He says, for the Lord alone will be your portion. And that's what David is saying here, not as a priest, but as a believer. He says, the Lord is my portion. That's what's really important. It is so easy to put our hope, it is so easy to put our hope in the good gifts that God brings us instead of our putting our hope in God himself. Isn't it? Uh, Christmas was a while ago, but those short people that we mentioned a little while ago, your kids, your grandkids, your great-grandkids, neighborhood kids, kids somewhere. I hope you all know kids somewhere. Do you remember how this works at Christmas time? Uh, the, the sort of classic moment on Christmas morning that is every parent's worst nightmare is grandma and grandpa give little Johnny a gift. 
And he tears the thing open. Oh, this is what I've always wanted. And he grabs the toy and he runs outside to play with it, running right by grandma and grandpa. Right? And that, that's a, a training moment. That's a parenting moment. Okay, go give your grandparents a hug. You know, we appreciate that, right? But you know, that's exactly what we do with God. We look at his gifts. We look at what he blesses us with. And, and we, we cling to those things and we forget sometimes the giver. And what David is showing us here is that it needs to be the Lord, it needs to be the giver of the gift that is our ultimate portion, our ultimate inheritance. It is so tempting to trust in the gifts instead of the giver. God's gifts are expressions of his grace that are meant to draw us and our attention to him. But they were never meant, listen, they were never meant to usurp God as our ultimate allegiance and trust and love. You know, one of the reasons we get stuck in our day of trouble is that we have set our hearts on getting our way. We put our our whole focus on God giving us what we want instead of seeing Him as our hope, regardless of the outcome. Now, that's often what God is up to in the day of trouble. If God wants us to prize him and not his gifts, what's he going to do in the day of trouble sometimes? What does Johnny do when the toy breaks? Right? Sometimes what God does in the day of trouble is he removes the gift. Not because he's penalizing us. But so we'll see it's him we ought to prize. It's the giver we ought to prize, not the gifts. Above him. In your day of trouble, what do you want more? The gifts of God or the giver? Um, a couple weeks ago, Amy, my 12-year-old daughter, and I got to travel to San Diego for a conference. This is a new thing in the Palmer family life where... Uh, I do a little bit of traveling, and um, so I'm starting to bring my kids with me. And this was our first out-of-state trip for Amy. So this, this is a big time. Uh, we went to San Diego. Um, I have some family there. We had a great time, right? We, had, uh, we, um, we uh, went to the beach. We saw some family. We ate really good food, including having sugar-based foods way too late at night. Um, and uh, you guys know who Tim Challies is, the blogger? Uh, Amy got to meet Tim Challies, so that was fun. That was cool. And um, great time, great week, refreshing, good time with family, good time with my daughter. Uh, great teaching, a great conference. We can tell you guys about this conference sometime. Um, and I came back, and Terry and I were going to our staff meeting, and he said, hey, how was the conference? You know, what did you learn? What was your favorite part? And I thought about it. I thought, you know, there's a lot of fun stuff, but, you know, my favorite part was just being with my daughter, just spending some time with her. I'm thinking... Why can I see that in a spending time with my kids? And I, and I struggle so much with that with my God. So we need to learn to value the giver as our ultimate joy instead of his gifts. What's the next one? What, what number are we on? Five? All right. Next one. We're, we're building this emergency plan for our day of trouble. What happens? What, what do we do? Where do we go? 
David is helping us. What do we do in our day of trouble? Uh, Number five, engage in actions to promote the goal. Engage in actions to promote the goal. Look at verses seven and eight. So in these two verses, he's going to give us two actions that help us to make God our highest good and our ultimate joy. Okay, look at action number one. It's in verse seven. Bless the Lord and follow his counsel. Bless the Lord and follow his counsel. Verse 7. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. So what's the picture here? When we're going through trouble, when we're going through a hard time, one of the things that is the most difficult things to do is to sleep. Right? Had a sleepless night in your day of trouble before? Well, that's where our psalmist is here. And he says, on those sleepless nights, when I'm in trouble, I've learned to commune with God. I've learned to bless God. And we say, well, how does he do that? Well, look back at the text. How do you you make God your treasure in moments that are difficult like that? David's answer, you let the word of God instruct you. You see that there? He says, the Lord has counseled me. How does he counsel me? He says, my mind instructs me in the night. Now, this is really interesting. David does not say, God appeared in my bedroom in a vision, and he gave me a word of encouragement. David says, you know what the normal way is, the usual way that God helps us in those days of trouble, especially on those sleepless nights, is he ministers to us through the normal means of grace, a verse that you've taken to heart. A memorized scripture. That's what he says there. He says, my mind instructs me in the night. What's he saying? He's saying in those sleepless nights, I look to God to counsel me by meditating on his word, you ready? That I've memorized. Now he's the king of Israel. He might have a Torah scroll laying around, but that's clearly not his focus here. He's saying my mind, what's in my mind is what God uses to counsel me, which means he had, he had set the word of God on his heart. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you, right? This is, this is showing us the value of what God does in moments of trouble when we're having struggle through Scripture, meditation, and memorization. Now, it's interesting. That's not what leads to, God, to the psalmist making God his treasure alone. He says, my mind instructs me in the night... And what does that allow him to do? To bless the Lord. Right? He blesses the Lord as his mind instructs him in the night. So when you're there and you're meditating on the Word of God, you've memorized the things of God. You ever hurt so much you can't even read your Bible? You ever been there? Has your mind ever been so scatterbrained to, to look at the words on the page and make sense of it is an impossible exercise? What are you going to do? It's what you've hid in your heart. That's going to help you. And David says, as I meditated on that, as I recalled that, it led me to be able to bless God. And you can, you can have a moment of worship on that sleepless night as you meditate on memorized scripture and as that enables you to bless your God, even in the midst of great difficulty. That's what he's telling us. God worked to counsel David through the word of God that David already knew in his mind. 
God can use lots of means, right? God can do that. He can use lots of means to help us. But you know what his main vehicle is? The word of God in your heart. And of course, this is a culture. People didn't have Bibles. This is all they had, right? They would go to synagogue. They would hear scripture. They would hear it at a festival. And it's not like they could go home and just whip out their Bible app on their phone. What they had was what they memorized and took to memory. And that is, that is still, that is still the best means that God uses. You know, sometimes God seems strangely silent in our day of trouble because we haven't spent enough time memorizing His Word. So here's a great question. Have you memorized enough of God's Word that the counsel God wants to bring you in the day of trouble will really help you? So that's, that's key number one, to bless the Lord who has counseled me through the memorized word. Look at the second action that he calls us to pursue, a second action to help us to achieve the goal of making God our treasure. It's in verse 8. It is this, set the Lord continually before you. Set the Lord continually before you. I love this verse. This is the verse years ago that struck my attention as a new Christian and it's been one of my favorites ever since. Look, look at it with me. Verse 8. I have set the Lord continually before me, and because He is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Based on its position in the text and based on how all of these uh, elements have come together, it is likely the main action that the psalm is calling us to follow. So this is it. Now, here's a very important theological question before I tell you what that means. God's everywhere all the time, right? God's omniscient, right? Let's pass the Sunday school theology theology test here. God is everywhere all the time. His omnipresent, excuse me. He's everywhere all the time, right? So what on earth does David mean when he says, I've set the Lord always in front of me? Isn't he there already? What does he mean? He's saying there's a difference between the fact that God is there and where your mind is focused. Okay, look back at the text. I have set the Lord continually before me. What does he mean? He's saying, I have made it my habit to live consciously in the presence of God. I live my life inviting God into every moment, into every situation, in every circumstance. You say, how do we do that? Well, one way we do that is by praying without ceasing. That sounds biblical, doesn't it? Right? Praying in every circumstance. Thinking about God. Remember what what, uh, uh, Solomon says in Proverbs 3? Um, In all your ways, acknowledge Him. Same thing, right? I'm setting the Lord always in front of me. I'm acknowledging in my ways. I'm committing my way to prayer. I'm, I'm going into a meeting, meditating on Scripture. I'm reflecting on an event in worship, you know, you're, you're, you're doing things to put God in the consciousness of your mind in every moment of the day. That's what he says. It's, it's living coram deo, in the face of God. It's making God your focus. Living in the presence of God, under the authority of God, for the honor and glory of God. It's setting Him always before you. Now, you're gonna laugh, but whenever I read this verse, I think of a story. Um, growing up, we had a station wagon, like most families. Now, if you're under 30, you may have to Google this because you have no idea what a station wagon is. It's what we used to call minivans and SUVs, okay? 
And, and these were big pieces of metal with hoods that were eight feet long. And, you know, you could actually open the hood and there was space in there, not just crammed with parts. Do you, how many had a minivan? Just show me here. Okay, a few of you. And the rest of you don't want to admit it. Okay, that's, that's cool. So had, the, had this uh, station wagon. How many had a station wagon? Okay, that's better. Thank you. Um, you can tell me when I say the wrong word, by the way. That's okay to do. So we had the station wagon, and I remember, I don't know it was my mom or my dad, but they would always put their sunglasses on the dashboard. Now, the dash on this thing was miles long. I mean, it was, it was huge. And, um, and, and you know how it works, right? The sunglasses go on the dashboard. You turn to the left, the sunglasses slide to the right, right? You turn to the right, sunglasses slide to the left. It's a great demonstration of Newton's laws of motion, actually. But So I, I grew up, and then mom going, oh, put it back there. I grew up watching one of my parents, my mom or my dad, just always grab those sliding sunglasses and put them back in the middle because they were always drifting to the peripheral, okay? And that's what this verse is about. Not station wagons and sunglasses. That's what we do, right? We get up in the morning, we spend some time in the Word of God. There he is, there's God, he's right in front of us. And by breakfast time, he's over here. We're not thinking about him anymore. What do we have to do? Set him always before us. We pick him up, we put him back in our consciousness, right? And then we get to the office, and he was there when we left for work, right? Where's the guy? Oh, he's slid over here now. We've got to grab him, put him back in front of us. That, that's, I think, something of the intent here, that we're always finding God and putting him right in the center of whatever we're doing, whatever we're thinking about, whatever we're going through, whatever experience, whatever location we're at. And, and because we're fallen people, like that Chevy dashboard, God is always sliding to the peripheral of life. David says, pick him up and put him back where he belongs. Put him, set him always before you. Living in constant theocentricity is the indispensable king. What is that? You you are making your life God-centered by putting him, inviting him, placing him, praying, thinking in everything that you do. Set the Lord continually before me. And notice, if we live like that, What does David say? You will not be shaken. Wow. That leads us to our next thing here. Realize the benefits, right? The benefits. uh, If we turn to God, if we make Him more than His gifts, our highest good, if we are practicing these, these principles that we've seen, setting Him always before us, prizing Him as our treasure, notice the benefits. Realize the benefits that He will bring in verses 9 to 10. Notice the first thing in verse 8. A stable soul. A stable soul. It's, it's the end of verse 8. I will not be shaken. The word shaken there means to totter or to sway. If you set God always before you, you have in your life what we might call a spiritual stability system. You know what that is? It doesn't mean if you do this, you're, the, the road of life is free of potholes. What it means is you have a spiritual stability system that when you hit those potholes in life, you're not going to run your car off the road in the ditch. You're going to go over it in safety. You're going to thrive and survive spiritually thinking. There's a, there's a stability to your life that comes. Like Jesus in Matthew chapter 7. This is, this is the wise man who builds his house on the rock. And when the storms of life come, your life doesn't fall apart. You have a quietness and a stability in your heart because God is at your right hand. Notice the second benefit, a stable soul. Secondly, a rejoicing heart. Verse 9. Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. This is a, a glad heart that rejoices in God. You see when... 
when we recognize that God is at our right hand, stop for a minute. The God of the universe, the God that spoke everything into existence, the God that runs everything, every moment of every day, the God that became flesh and dwelt among us to live and to die and to take our place so that God and sinners can be reconciled, the God that does all things well, that is all-powerful and all-wise and all-good, is beside you? What can touch us? What can go wrong if he is at our right hand? There's a stability, but there's a joy, a settled joy when you go, man, I have my God. I have this God. And it it brings, this is not like I'm going to Disney World kind of joy. Not like that. This is a settled, quiet, happy, contented heart of joy. When you realize that your God is with you, though everything else in your life may be falling down around you. So a, a stability, a secure life. Or number three is a secure life. My flesh also will dwell securely. Now, dwelling securely doesn't mean bad things will never happen. What it means is that there is a settled confidence in your heart. Like the psalm we read, Psalm 56, What can man do to me? Or the proverb that says, In the fear of the Lord there is strong confidence. There is stability. There is joy. There is security. Look at the last one, verses 10 and 11. There is an eternal hope. An eternal hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. But you will make known to me the path of life. You say, what's the benefit here? It's a little bit trickier to see in the language. That word sheol, do you see that in your Bible? Or, or maybe, maybe it gets translated as grave or the underworld, something like that. It usually means death or grave. But what David has in mind here, he's saying, you're not going to abandon me when I die. That's what he's saying. And, and you understand, the doctrine of eternal life is not as fully developed in the Old Testament as it is in the New. But this is one of those passages where we see that as David turns to his God, he has a confidence that his physical death will not be the end of him. That there is a hope beyond this life, beyond the grave, beyond Sheol, to use the words used here, that God will not abandon him in that moment. He says here, you will make known to me the path of life. God will tell him how to get on a path that leads to life a life of knowing God as his greatest good. So as we turn to God, this emergency plan that we're seeing develop in this psalm, this emergency plan where we break the glass on our day of struggle brings these four amazing benefits. And you might, you might remember them simply by this, stability, felicity, security, and eternity. There's one more. And this is, this is the mountain peak in our climb. This is where we're trying to get. This is where we get to the, the vista view. This is where we get to the top and we get to look down and see what was accomplished is this last verse. This is, this is the destination where we've been trying to go. End of verse 11. The last emergency step to take in our day of trouble is this. Enjoy His presence as your greatest good. Enjoy His presence as... I'm sorry. Enjoy His presence as your greatest joy. Enjoy his presence as your greatest joy. Verse 11. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. 
this verse reveals the premise of the whole song. This is, it's the mountain peak. This is where we've been trying to go. This is our destination. But it's also the linchpin, right? If you pull this, everything else in this psalm falls apart. Meaning, if you don't believe this, if you don't buy into the truth of what God is revealing to us here, the rest of this psalm will not be an encouragement to you. What is this psalm saying? This psalm is declaring that there is nothing more joyful, nothing more pleasurable, nothing more satisfying than having God himself. That's the argument. There is nothing that will bring you more happiness, nothing that will bring you more joy, nothing that will bring you more satisfaction than God himself. Because it says, look back at the text, it is in his presence that we have fullness of joy. And in his right hand, there are never-ending pleasures. And if you believe that, you're prepared for the day of trouble. To have God, to have Him by our side, to know joy in Him, to know that He alone is the means of having joy and satisfaction, especially in the midst of trouble. Why is that true? Because if you lose everything as a believer, you have the one thing you truly need. You have the one thing that can never be taken from you. You can have the one God who will never leave you or forsake you, the scripture tells us. And if you have God, you have everything. Now, I want you to be really, really honest with me, okay? Can we have a family huddle up chat here? Does this verse seem true? When you buy something you've always wanted and you're happy... And then you think about God. When you get that medical treatment that helps you, that maybe even saves your life, and you compare that to having God, and you go, why does this verse not feel true sometimes? The reason is that every day we pursue happiness in other things than God. And those things do bring us some level of happiness. But this verse doesn't feel true when our lives are pretty good. Which is why you and I need trouble. We need trouble. Because trouble exposes and shows us and helps us to see and experience the truth that there is more joy and delight and happiness in God and everything else. And I think, frankly, for some people, some Christians, they just haven't suffered enough to see that this is true. Which is why we need trouble. Why does trouble help us to see that God alone is our satisfaction and our delight? Because trouble often removes the anything else that we're looking to for our joy. Trouble takes away all other things that we are so quickly looking for, for joy. And until all we have is God, sometimes we don't see the truth of this. Uh, Probably all of you are familiar with the hymn Amazing Grace written by a man named John Newton. Uh, So this is a little bit older, but I'm going to read this to you. This is something John Newton wrote to a person who was suffering. Listen to this. 
the Lord deals with us as children. Children, when they are young, have many indulgences. And as they grow up, they are subject to discipline and must learn obedience. So when faith and knowledge are in their infancy, the Lord helps this weakness uh, helps this weakness by cordials and sensible comforts. But when they are advanced in growth, he exercises and proves them by many changes and trials. So let, let me translate the old English for you. He's saying, like kids, when we're young in our faith, God gives us usually many things to help us, many, many blessings. As we grow older in our Christianity, God brings more trials. He brings more troubles. He removes some of those benefits. Why would he do that? He exercises and proves them by many changes, many trials, and calls us to live more directly upon his power and his promises in the face of all discouragements. Now listen to this. To hope even against hope, and at times God seems to deprive us of every subsidiary support that we would lean only and entirely on our beloved. That's why we need trouble. And that's why in trouble is when we often see that it's only in His presence that we have fullness of joy. It's only in His right hand we have pleasures forever. And in those moments of trouble, as we follow this counsel, we will see and experience the truth that His presence is truly the best value we can have. But wait, there's more. That's what your outline says, right? Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. So as you're turning to Acts chapter 2, something happened in this psalm. I skipped a verse, actually, and I did that intentionally. Some of you may have caught it. Um, Peter, in Acts chapter 2, the church has just been launched. It's the day of Pentecost. Peter gets up and he gives this sermon. The gospel is going out in all the world, right? So now now we're after Jesus' ascension. Peter is preaching. People get saved. And and in Acts chapter 2, in Peter's sermon, he quotes our psalm. He quotes the psalm. And it's interesting. We'll we'll pick it up. Uh, Let's pick it up in Acts chapter 2, verse 27. Okay? 27. You see he quotes it at length there. Let's pick it up in Acts chapter 2, verse 27. Because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay... You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And Peter says this in verse 29. Let me point out something obvious here. This text says, David's writing, that he will not allow his Holy One to undergo decay. And Peter says, hey guys, David's grave is right over there. He's been, he's been rotting, bodily speaking, in his grave for like 900 years. So what is the psalmist talking about? And you'll notice the language. If you you remember the psalm, um, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. That's David talking about himself. Then he changes the word. You will not allow your holy one to undergo decay. And Peter points out that change for us. So what happens in our psalm is that verse launches us into the future and says in, in in a second sense, that verse could not have been about David himself. Now, look back at Acts chapter 2 and tell me, uh, who does Peter ascribe these verses to? Who's David talking about? He's talking about the one who would come from the line of David. He's talking about the king that would come in the line of David the king. 
He's talking about the Lord Jesus, isn't he? That the Lord Jesus will not be abandoned by his father to undergo decay. And, of course, these verses point to the resurrection of Jesus, right? That's what they're doing. So Peter, Peter's making this connection between our psalm, which is about trouble and about the presence of God, and, and that the presence of God itself is our greatest blessing in our day of trouble. And then Peter connects that now to the resurrection and to Jesus and to the gospel, and we go, what's the connection? This is what I think the connection is. The presence of God is not your highest good. The presence of God is not fullness of joy. The presence of God is not pleasures forever if you and I are still in our sins. Right? A sinful, unholy person without Jesus coming into the presence of a holy God is sure certain spiritual disaster and judgment. Don't take my word for it. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31, just write that down, is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God when you're in your sin. So what does that mean? It means the answer, the joy, the value of having the presence of God as our greatest good, as our greatest joy, as the pleasures we need in the moment of trouble. That is not your help. It is your judgment, actually, unless Jesus comes. But if God provides a Savior, if God provides a Messiah who will rescue you and rescue me, who will forgive us of that sin, who will cleanse us from all unrighteousness, who will take his own perfect life, his perfect righteousness, and impute it, credit to us, to our account. If we stand before this holy God in the holiness and righteousness of the Savior himself, then guess what? Then the presence of God is the most amazing blessing we can enjoy. The presence of God in our sinfulness that leads to certain destruction in the gospel is exchanged for the presence of God as a believer trusting Christ that is our joy and our hope in the day of trouble. I think that's the connection Peter is trying to make in connecting these two things together. In times of trouble, take refuge in God by making Him your treasure. Remember what Jesus said, John 16? In this world you will have trouble, but take courage. I've overcome the world. And as we come to know Him in Christ and know the presence of God through that relationship, we can have a joy and a peace and a life in the midst of trouble that is unshakable and even joyful. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this wonderful psalm. Thank you for a Savior who forgives us and clothes us in righteousness to make us to be able to stand in your presence, the Scripture tells us, blameless and with great joy. And Lord, I pray, would you help us in our day of trouble that may be today, or it may be future, 
to see that to draw near to you and to have you and to value you and to set you always before us in every moment of life is truly all that we need. Lord, give us faith to believe this. Give us conviction to practice it. Give us perseverance to continue in it. Might we call upon you in our day of trouble and find you to be the all-satisfying God that you are. We pray, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.